Hello and welcome to American History 2. Um, I don't even know how to open this one up, Malcolm. Uh, this is us returning after six months where we haven't spoken into a microphone. Um, but if people ever listen to this, they'll have heard our voices again before then. Indeed. Uh, so we're speaking to you from the past, which is frankly appropriate. And this is part of a series you might never even hear called American History 2 A to Z. Yes. Or A to Z, depending on where in the world you come from. Exactly, and that's a very important distinction. Um, and basically the idea, which I am going to be honest, I stole off another podcast, uh, which is actually a football podcast, so I'm not, I'm not stealing from a fellow history um, presenter, but the, the idea is we have, a, we have written down in advance a list of topics on a letter. Um, they have then been scrunched up on a piece of paper and thrown into Malcolm's Bizarrely warm hat that he has here, despite the fact that we are currently recording at the end of May. Um, and we're going to pick out letters. I'm oh, sorry, we're going to pick out the words and uh, just basically talk about whatever they bring to mind. And we have half an hour to, to get through as many as possible. Um, some we might talk about for five, ten minutes. Others we might skip over in a sentence. Levels of coherency and accuracy can go down as well as up. Exactly, exactly. If you thought our other podcasts were under-researched and uh, spurious speculation at best, then, well, you're about to have a whole new level here. This will bring a whole new definition of shambolic. <laughs> and so with that, I'm going to start the timer, um, which is 30 minutes. And uh, Malcolm, you may select the first one. Oh, I'm going to delve into my warm hat. <laughs> uh, right, and, I, and so my, my scrunching of the things. Okay, our first... Our first letter C, today's show, brought to you by the letter C, is Clark, brackets, William. Uh, is, uh, oh, are we talking about the great explorer or part of Meriwether Lewis and... Uh, and William Clark, and William the Lewis Clark, and Clark yeah. expedition. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was almost mixed up there with the, the infamous southern sheriff, Jim Clark. Clark. So that was about mm. to go a different way. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have that much to say about William Clark. All I know is he and uh, Meriwether Lewis, and I couldn't see the word Meriwether more if I, uh, if I had the opportunity to. Uh, but him and Meriwether Lewis went west on, at the behest of Thomas Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson after the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. The most so there's two interesting things about Lewis and Clark. Well, there's loads of interesting things about Lewis yes, and Clark expedition. The two most interesting things were one they couldn't agree on a spelling of mosquito. Uh-huh. I think in their in their what were the, what were the two alternatives? there was multiple alternatives. They never spelled it the same way twice. I think and this is from vague memory of reading about this. Like you know the mosquitoes be right vexing today and all these <laughs> these kind of things. Uh, but they couldn't agree on a spelling of mosquito. In fact, but spelling was variable in this period anyway. There wasn't real you know, defined kind of, kind of stuff. But the, the the second more interesting thing, other than their spelling of mosquito, is actually the fact they're not the two most interesting people mm-hmm. in the story. The the young Native American woman Sacagawea. Mm-hmm. who accompanies them on the journey, is by far the more interesting person and actually the hero of the entire story. She serves as guide, interpreter. She rescues them uh, from river rapids on more than one occasion. And she was, uh, you know, at the start of this, she was little more than a slave. She'd been mm-hmm. sold as a child bride uh, to a fur trapper, and I might get this wrong, whose name also begins with C. I think he was called Charbonneau. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was effectively a slave, but... She saved their lives. She was she was healer. She was guide. She was interpreter, and she was rescuer. And Sacagawea, the young Native American woman, is the hero of the Lewis and Clark expedition, not Lewis or Clark. 
Mic drop, and I think we've boxed off William Clark. Yay, oh, William Clark, done. Uh, by, by, by not talking about William Clark. <laughs> cool, well, I'm going to go for the next one, so uh, let's see what we have here. Uh, drum roll. Dun, 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 okay, dun, this is a rather small topic we have to, we have to cover on this one. Yep. This literally says China. China. Yes, yes. What would you like to say about China in the context of American history? Of Unrelated to this, my great great grandfather had his legs sawn off without anaesthetic in China. That sounds like if you take up the rest. We've of got uh, we have family photographs of him uh, minus leg after coming back from from China. Is, was he was he in China for? To have his legs so No, long. no, no, he didn't go there specifically to have his leg removed. It just so happened that when he was there, uh, I think that, I mean, he was from, you know, just outside Glasgow. I think you could go to closer places to have your leg yeah, removed yeah, in China. Yeah. But that's, you know, so China and the United States, where do we, uh, where do we start with that? I mean, you could go, you could go present, couldn't you? I mean, like, so, well, so where do you think the, where do you think the roots are of, like, let, let's put aside the, the figure of Donald Trump and, and everything. Oh, and, good. You know, like, um, so, I mean, we were coming recording this about a week after the China-US trade talks have collapsed for the 42nd time. They've probably collapsed in the 40, 490th by the time this, you ever hear this. Where do we think the roots of this um, are? This antagonistic relationship? Um, with it? Is, it, is it a Cold War phenomenon? Is it all the way back to the quote-unquote loss of China um, of 1949 um, or is it simply a rival superpower now coming of age and America's feeling threatened um, I think anything would have to from my point of view not being a sinologist it would be pure speculation on my part my sense is being a kind of US foreign well, from policy the US perspective. from the US, from the US foreign policy in the Cold War I think 1949 is crucially is crucially important the fact that there were so many important figures driving American ideas about China, not least you know, Henry Lucy, mm-hmm. uh, driving ideas he's about the, China. He's the one that declared the American century. American century in 19, early 1941. Yeah. He was, you know, had great affection for China. He had experience of China, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So there was a lot of people, China for a lot of Americans, particularly Americans with that kind of like missionary kind of ideas and everything, mm-hmm. was a hugely important place and had been for you know, decades and decades, the idea of the China market, the mm. mythical China market, that if you can crack that, you know, you might own, you know, a toothpick is only worth 0.0001 of a cent, mm-hmm. but the 600 million Chinese sell each of them a toothpick and your fortune is made. Yeah. Uh, but it was this myth of the China market, you know, American expansionism and all these kinds of things. So it was, China was an important uh you know, aspect in, in American history and American thinking about the wider world, the trans-Pacific world, but also Chinese immigration. Yeah. I mean, the transcontinental railroad coming from the West was built by Chinese labour. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there's, there's been important, but I think 1949 and the idea that, that... I have just always found it fascinating that it's called the loss of China. As if it was America's to lose. Like, I, I've just always, it's always been one of those, like, sayings that I've just, I don't know, it sort of speaks of a certain hubris that was around in the United States at that time, the idea that they had China to lose. Um when when in reality, you know, even that you know, obviously China's grown ex you know, hugely since then, but 
even then, it's still a huge country. <laughs> but I mean, so but so many kind of like of those who support, you know, who were like behind the idea of the loss of China. It was you know, it was a rhetorical construct to attack the Truman administration with yeah. over perceived weakness in the emerging Cold War, and because in truth, it was the it was the it was it was Jiang Jiexi and his nationalists. It was the endemic corruption and incompetence. And the you know, the lack of any sensible military strategy, and and actually the very clever military strategy of the communist side, and the way they fought the re-emergent Chinese civil war after the end of World War Two, mm. that's what contributed. You know, the, the, I mean, in part, I think the loss of China is in some ways a quite a racist perspective, mm. in that. Oh, this was nothing to do with the Chinese people themselves and the conflict that was at the heart of the Chinese civil war. Oh no. If America had done more, the nationalists would have would have won. Yeah. And I'm not a sinologist, but from what I've read recently, so like Paul Thomas Chamberlain's excellent book, uh, The Cold War's Killing Fields, and Greg Brzezinski's work on Sino-American relations to do with the developing world and everything, and they obviously start with 49 and all that kind of stuff. And little the United States could have actually done. Yeah. So, 1949. Yeah. Being a Cold War historian, of course I'm going to say yeah, 1949. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. the final thing before we move on to... After they've almost boxed off China, um, without doing it down and saying that, you know, Japan's better, like we did with William Clark. And um, the one thing that, uh, I, I've always found funny about it is just how they continue to pretend that China was Taiwan for, like, you know, the island of Taiwan for ages because the, the Chiang Kai-shek government exiled to there or whatever. And it wasn't till, was it, was it, ne- who was the first to recognise China? Was it Nixon? Was it Nixon in his first? No! Or was it Johnson? Carter! Wait, so Nixon went and still didn't recognise it? Wasn't, it wasn't formally, it was the, the normalisation of relations with China happened under Carter. They, well, let's end on that then. Yeah, there you go. So you C for Carter, to yeah. make Carter, there we go. Yeah. Right, shall I pick one? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so we've done Clark, we've done China. Ten minutes to do What comes up next? I've bundled these up far too tightly. Okay, next one is... Oh! Central Intelligence Agency. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Central Intelligence. I'm trying to think what I could say. About if you know something of the CIA, what would you what would you say about the CIA? If a student asked you, if, if, if a student asked me, yeah. about, I'd say I have a friend and colleague uh, who I can put you in touch with. <laughs> I don't know that much of the CIA. <laughs> um, I, I I guess the the one thing I'm talking to you that never really occurred to me until I really thought about it is just how sort of recent a phenomenon the CIA was um, that there wasn't a CIA until the late 1940s 1947 National 19, Security Act 1947 yeah we, I think we discussed all the, the rise of covert action mm-hmm. and everything and, uh, and it's one of those branches of the US government that's just clouded in so much myth and, and unless you study it in depth I I find it really hard to get my imagination around it. Um, and one of the but one of the important things is the CIA was complicit and took an active role in creating that myth. Yeah, I mean, this was a part of CIA's external propaganda was to portray itself yeah. uh, in this way, in a way that I don't think American intelligence agencies had done before. You have the original, 
you know, American Intelligence Agency, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the first really formalized mm-hmm. one from the 18, 1880s. Then you have the, the first signals intelligence agency in, in World War One, uh, the, the American Black Chamber, mm-hmm. as it was called, which has got rid of in the 1920s, much to the annoyance of Yardley, Herbert Yardley, uh, who was their senior cryptographer and poker player as well, wrote several books, books on how to win poker. Oh. Uh, so, but the CIA were very, very interested in developing their own mythology and engaging with the public and took a, an active role in, uh, through the Publications Review Board, I think it was called, in dealing with memoirs written by former CIA officers to ensure that they were friendly or if they weren't friendly to try and kind of get around that kind of thing. But that starts to come apart as the myth of intelligence starts to collapse in the 1970s and the late 1960s. So to try and actually... Because we could get lost in, in the weeds of, of, of whatever talking about the CIA. Can you think of a, an example where you can say the CIA had a clear success? Like, is, is there something where you can point in US history and go, without the CIA, this would have gone worse than it did? Or, the, you know, that they, um, they helped in some way? Like a solid because I know part of the reason that the CIA is they try not to reveal their methods and try not to reveal everything that's part of the whole myth building. But is there is there something where you can go, yeah, yeah, CIA I think actually help there? More more widely. I think mean, this is not just the CIA, this is intelligence agencies throughout the world during the Cold War that I think that secret intelligence genuinely did help to stop the Cold War going hot. Really? That without, well, there's a famous, and it might be slightly apocryphal story, I think it might be Peter Hennessy talks about it in one of his books, that the, and I'm sure, and I'll get his, his role wrong, Percy Craddock, who was the last Cold War head of the Joint Intelligence Committee in the UK, I could, that's probably terribly wrong, but apparently there's a story that when the Berlin Wall comes down, and it's clear that the Cold War is over, he invites his staff into his office, pulls a bottle of very expensive champagne from his bottom drawer, cracks it open and says, congratulations, ladies and gentlemen, we stopped the war. <laughs> the, his his view of, of secret intelligence was that it was the, the front line between you know, uh, you know, society and nuclear war. Which is the ultimate outcome of the cold, the cold war. So, and I think the CIA fits into that as well. I mean, in terms of, it depends how you define success. The coup in Iran in 1953 was a success in terms that it advanced American interests, it brought the Shah to power, it got rid of Mossadegh, it stopped the nationalisation of the Iranian oil industry. But that has long-term consequences in terms of 1979 and the Iranian revolution, which leads to the creation of the Islamic Republic. So how do you define success? When do you define success? Short, medium, long-term? Long-term? Disaster. Yeah. The funny thing, actually, I was just thinking what the first image comes into my head when I think of the CIA, and it's a silly little film that was released about 10 years ago called, did you ever see it called Burn After Reading? Yes. Yeah, yeah Coen Brothers film. And George Clooney on it and stuff. And John Malkovich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they've got, and it's the, the CIA director, and they, and what part of the plot point is there's Russians involved, and this is before Putin's became a thing. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like the Russians? <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny how, like, you know, now that you couldn't do that, you, because the Russia army scene doesn't do so, yeah. But anyway, moving on. Uh, so I unfurled this one while you were talking, Malcolm. Um, so this one is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. 
what do you have to say um, about one of the earliest suffragists or suffragettes? Yeah, well, women's know. women's rights campaigner. Women's general, women's I mean, yeah, how you would term her? Yeah. A giant figure in American history. I mean, you know, I tell you, I'm sure both of us, when we were doing kind of lectures on kind of like 19th century America and even into the 20th century, you can't do that without mentioning Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Seneca Falls yeah. Convention of 1848, the first real women's rights convention. And what's caused they weren't allowed into a New York prohibition meeting, if I remember, because there was a meeting, it was a, I think it was a temperance society, yeah, yeah. this is when, you know, alcohol, because, um, you know, prohibition's tied up in women's rights because of, you know, for reasons yeah. we've discussed in other, uh, other podcasts, um, and they, they they tried to get into the meeting, and the men said, no, there's no women allowed, so they went, oh, we'll stuff you, then we'll go set up our own convention, and boom, Seneca Yep, Seneca Falls. Uh, and it's fascinating, the, you know, the entire you know, debate there between you know, huge figures in American feminist history, or American history generally, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, mm-hmm. and figures like over the votes for women, because there were not every attendee at the Seneca Falls Convention supported votes for women. Yeah. You know, so there's there's an interesting kind of, uh, you know, kind of rupture there yeah. uh, over these kind of things. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton's... Uh, it's great, and the Declaration of Sentiments actually in uh, the most recent uh, exam that I set for our American History survey, oh. there was uh, you had to select from a bunch of you know, source extracts, and the first one they could choose from was an extract from the Declaration of Sentiments oh. that comes out of the Seneca Falls Convention, which you know clearly takes the language of the Declaration of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, but brings it round to you know the idea of rights for women. Mm. You know, because you know, Jefferson and his cronies were not interested in that kind of thing when they were, you know, fighting the Revolutionary War and then when Madison was drafting the Constitution and everything. Although, interestingly or not, was it not in the first, when, when the, when the United States of America was officially created, was there, not in some states, I want to say New Jersey allowed women to New, vote. New Jersey and had, then, had, and then they actually went back and said, oh wait, actually no. Yeah, <laughs> I thought, I'm sure it was up to, it's, I don't know the exact dates. It's maybe into the 19th century yeah, that New yeah. Jersey has... It's a loophole. I mean, it's not something they've deliberately done. Yeah. But there's a loophole that allows women to vote. And some kind of, uh, you know, women look at this and go, hang on a minute. We, and they turn up and all these men are going, no, 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 women can't possibly vote. And they're like, ah, ha, 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 in the New Jersey Constitution. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, but that's something that, I mean, always comes up in, in lectures in American history surveys yeah. because... It's, it's a crucially important precursor to what happens in the 20th century in terms of the, the suffragist movement and... Well, there's a, there's a really interesting um, film uh, that I remember watching. I mean, it's a long time since I've seen it, so I might get things mixed up. It was called Iron-Jawed Angels. I think it was an HBO film. Yes, yeah, yeah, I don't know uh, what you mean. Yeah. It's, sort of, it's sort of the new generation that's yeah. more aggressive coming up and wanting yeah. to push rights. And I think it has Stanton, or at least people that are sort of of Stanton's ilk, and they sort of, they are very much presented in the film as these old stuffy go along to get along, be nice to the men to try and get stuff off them, whereas you have Jane Adams coming in and wanting to tear everything up and tell the men where to go. To Victoria get Woodhull was always my yeah. favourite out of out of them. Lady Satan, as Thomas Nast portrayed her in a cartoon one time, because <laughs> she was such a threat to to the as he saw it, American families and the American way of life and ideas of womanhood and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Thomas Nast is a bit of a... Thomas Nast. He's a bit of a... I, can't, I don't know if I can say You're going to say it. You're going to say it. He's a bit of a dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a total dick. Yeah. Uh, his views towards many things. Women, African-Americans, uh, Catholics. Yeah. 
immigrants of most kinds, yeah, yeah. unless they were his kind of immigrant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, unless you're yeah. a wasp nest living for you, I don't think. Anyway, shall we move on? Yeah, let's, let's, let's move on. I was going to look at the Katie Stanton. Great. Fantastic. Okay, what's up next? What have we got in this one? Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. And cocaine. Okay, well, this, this is a... It's actually quite appropriate given I've just taught a course on the 1980s. Um, it is, it's fascinating to me, first of all, how... The 60s, 70s and 80s and doing the reading are sort of known by three different drugs. Yes. Like, you know, so you've got, the 60s is sort of LSD, acid, the 70s, heroin, um, you've also got marijuana going between those two, and then the 80s is just the cocaine decade. Um, but obviously the, the, what has really been left, the legacy of that is, is the war on drugs, um, which is announced in the 1970s by Richard Nixon. But isn't really pursued with great force. It also features a sort of rehabilitation angle to mm. it. It's not just pure punitive measures. But in the 1980s, you know, it's throws of Reagan, but it's not just Reagan, it's all the Republicans, it's all the Democrats, it's even African American leaders are, there's this just huge fear whipped up about cocaine, um, and particularly crack cocaine, yeah. um, the solid substance that is mostly smoked by poorer people in the nation's um, urban centres, um, which are often, uh, you know, sort of ghetto areas, more so even than today uh, in terms of in the 1980s because of the economic hardships that followed. Whereas you, you also have the powder cocaine that's smoked by the, oh, sorry, snorted by the, the middle class, tend to be white, um, has the glamour of Wall Street attached to it and everything. Uh, and, and obviously the big thing that comes in in the 1980s is this idea of mandatory minimum sentences. Mm. Um, whereby there's, you can be, you're sentenced to a minimum of five years in prison, for instance, if you're caught with five milligrams of crack cocaine, whereas you have to be caught with 500 milligrams of powder cocaine, um, to be, to have the similar sentence. And this obviously is, is played a key, a key part of, of the rise of the phenomenon of, of mass incarceration. It's not the whole story, mm. um, but I mean, that's now, that's definitely what cocaine brings to mind for me. And of course, because it's hilarious, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. Indeed. Which if you have a chance, dear listener, go and Google Nancy Reagan different strokes. Um, and you'll see her episodes, um, where she, where she gives a speech to the, the different strokes class and, and they have like 10 year olds outing themselves for having taken drugs and things like that. But Nancy tells them to say, just say no and everybody's happy in the end. And, and at the same time, what this also leads to, this, you know, the, the war on drugs, 
you end up with what we what you see now, the the start of the real militarization of American policing. Because mm-hmm. in the 1970s, you have Los Angeles creates the first SWAT team. Yeah. And then as the, as the war on drugs, more and more cities and municipalities are creating SWAT teams and they're becoming more and more heavily armed and new equipment. Like Daryl Gates, when he's police chief of Los Angeles, rolls out this kind of like armored, ex-military armored personnel carrier with a battering ram on the front. And I think the first time they use it, they go into the wrong house. And the, the, the media are there and it's just like a complete shambles and everything. But yeah, so alongside this, you see this, Increasing militarization of American policing, which again, alongside mandatory minimums, disproportionately targets African Americans mm-hmm. and other ethnic minorities. Yeah, as, as I said earlier, though, one of the interesting parts of it, and, and I'm sure you know a lot of them would take it back if they could now, but a lot of African American leaders, those in Congress, mm. are are right behind it because yes. they're the ones most most affected by. The crime that drug, um, you know, drug peddling, and, and, and but there's a there's a great split in amongst community leaders mm-hmm. and everything as well over mm-hmm. approaches to the war and drugs. Some great work being done by the historian Donna March mm-hmm. yeah. on uh, oh, there's a great article she wrote called a "Crack in Los Angeles," mm-hmm. and it's and it's really great. It really gets to the heart of the the fissures that were opened up in amongst the African American community over responses to the war and drugs, mandatory minimums, militarized policing. All of these kind of things. Uh, it's really interesting as well. Some of the adverts they create, they're actually done by a private group called, I forget what they're called now, um, and they do all these series of adverts, and there's the most famous one, This Is Your Brain on Drugs, and it's like the guy, like, you know, splits an egg and puts an egg into a frying pan, okay, yeah. and goes, this is your brain on drugs. And, um, I'm not sure, I'm not a scientist, I don't think that's scientifically accurate. Uh, <laughs> I'm not convinced of that analogy. But it's really interesting to compare, because teaching the 80s course, the fact they did nothing like this on HIV in America. Mm, like, you know, yeah. as, in, as we've talked about in the past in Britain, you've got the big scary tombstone, don't die of ignorance and all that kind of thing. You can see that Americans have the tools to do this sort of thing better than Britain does, really. Mm. You know, they're always at the cutting edge when it comes to the, you know, the, Television industry. But in the UK, we also had a Just Say No campaign as well, fronted by the cast of popular children's television show Grange Hill. Uh, because there was a storyline in Grange Hill in this period where uh, one of the lead characters, Zamo, uh, ends up overdosing mm-hmm. on drugs in the school. I think it was in the school toilets or at a disco or something like that. And oh, and they had, they had this big uh, Just Say No campaign. And there was even a song that got on top of the pops called Just Say No. Again, dear listener... Look up the British Just Say No pop song uh, for some top quality foot tapping anti drugs pop. Okay, uh, I think uh, I don't think there's any better place to leave that than Grange Hill. I didn't expect that to come up. Yep. So uh, moving on, the, this, you can take this whichever way. Okay. The civil Rights Act, and then I've said whichever in brackets, i.e., because there's a lot of civil rights acts. You can take the ones in the 19th century if you want. You can go forward. You can take the ones in the 60s or the 80s. Whichever way you'd like to go with it. Crikey. It's a tough choice. Mm-hmm. Which one would you pick? Let's not go for the obvious. Yeah. What one would you pick? If you didn't, if you weren't going for the obvious one. Okay, well, so it's, uh, just to stick with the theme in the 80s then. So I was just teaching the, the Civil Rights Restoration Act. Mm. Passed in 1988, I want to say. Um, and the reason I picked that is it, it sort of just, it just strengthens provisions in the original Civil Rights Act. Um, but the, the reason it's quite interesting is it shows that up to the 1980s, 
that existed a bipartisan Republicans and Democrats, almost all of them, had uh, support for civil mm. rights measures. So they, they didn't all agree on other measures to help, you know, minorities, you know, like uh, obviously like economic measures or affirmative action, things like that. That that was more contentious. But there was this bipartisan consensus over basic, you know, equality in terms of law. Um and the reason it's shown that is the fact that Reagan tries to, I think he tries to veto the Civil Rights Restoration Act. It definitely makes it clear he's not in favour of it, um, and his, his veto is overridden, and, and it passes because Reagan opposes it on his anti, anti-government anti line. That's always his thing. And what are the provisions of the Civil Rights Restoration Act? It just, it just sort of strengthens, basically there have been ways that, as with all laws, you know, people that oppose it try to find ways around it, uh, find your loopholes, find everything that. So it was just sort of strengthening the provisions, making it easier for, I believe, making it easier for the Justice Department to intervene if there was any, you know, contravening of the original Civil Rights Act in the, of, of 1964, um, which, you know, had desegregated public facilities. Um, and so here's a question for you. Okay, when we're thinking about the Civil Rights Act of 64, let's talk about the obvious one. Mm-hmm. The most important piece of American legislation post-1945, question mark, in the style of a, an exam question. See, I've always, I, I don't know if I've always just done this to be a contrarian, but I've always said the Voting Rights Act is more important. Ah, um, why? Um... I think, like I said, maybe just to be contrary. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, once you, like, I, I think Lyndon Johnson said it quite well. Like, you know, he said, you know, once you give these people, and obviously he's referring to African Americans at this point, um, these people, you know, the, the actual weapon, i.e. the ballot, mm. then you can't, there's no going back. Um, and, the, and one of the ways that this really manifests itself really quickly is the fact that after the Voting Rights Act, you just, unless you're in very certain areas of the South, you can no longer be openly racist because now you have a whole swath of voters who are just waiting there to vote you out of office um, because they can now vote. Um, and I also mean, you know, America loves all its myths of citizenship and belonging to this great American experiment. Now, people were actually, you were a full citizen by that point once the Voting Rights Act was passed. That doesn't mean you didn't have disadvantages, but mm-hmm. you you still very much had you now had more tools in your armor. Um, if that's not too much of a mixed metaphor, or whatever I just said. But um, yeah, no, I think it's pretty mixed. Yeah, but I mean, you did see, for example, some some of the most racist sheriffs. I believe, like Sheriff Jim Clark, who was there as part of the Selma crisis, he gets voted out um, straight after as soon as as African Americans are given the vote, and and you see just. A lot of instances like that in the Southerners being, no longer being able to be segregationists. Whereas if you hadn't had the Voting Rights Act, but you had to have the Civil Rights Act, they could have still been segregationists and maybe sought to overturn it. There we go. What time are we on? How much have we got time for another one? We have two minutes and nine seconds. Okay. The, keep going until we we'll finish this one then. Let's, let's go. There's uh, the name I can never ever pronounce properly. Leon Colgos. McKinley's murderer. McKinley's murderer, the assassin of President William McKinley. Ah, the man who brings Theodore Roosevelt to the White House. Indeed. Uh, do you know actually I'm kind of I'm kinda of sad that this is uh, being recorded now because I've just 
downloaded a book um, on McKinley's 1896 victory, which is written by none other than Carl Rove. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl was a big political history guy. Um, big fan of William Jennings Bryan? I haven't got to that part, but I would say it's not. No, <laughs> I would have to, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, McKinley, oh, let's say, should we talk about Cogos or should we talk about McKinley? I mean, Cogos are just a bit of a lost soul. Is, he's an anarchist. Anarchist, an yeah, anarchist. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading uh, Eric Rauchway's book, Murdering McKinley. Yes, yeah, It's yeah. all about Leon Cogos and, uh, just, uh, I mean, it, it's really interesting for setting how ideas of anarchism were around in the late 1890s, you know? Yeah, and the, the anarchist threat. And I mean, it was seen, I mean, you know, before communism becomes the big thing. I mean, communism's on the rise at this point. But anarchism is the big threat to the republic. They're like, oh my god, anarchy, bomb-throwing anarchists. Yeah, yeah. Because there have been anarchist bomb attacks. There is, you know, been late, Gilded days labour unrest, you know, is suffused with ideas so of, of anarchism. and Islamic terrorists just now in America yeah. and then how they felt about communist terrorists in the 20s and stuff yeah. like that. And, yeah. you know, anarchists were not seen as American. They were immigrants, ignoring the fact that the majority of Americans are immigrants yeah. or of immigrant stock. Uh, you know, so yeah, the, it was a similar kind of a, you know idea. I mean, different but similar to the the ways that Islamic terrorism is thought about these yeah. days. And also, McKinley is one of these guys who just sort of was passed into history as oh he was assassinated, and whereas, or he went to war with Spain. Yeah, well that's the thing. He's sort of on the cusp of a lot of these changes taking place. Yeah. Um, I think one of Wolves' arguments is that he really helps cement the Republican. Oh, there we go. We have hit our. 30 minutes, but we'll finish talking yep. about this. You've started, so you'll finish. Yes, indeed. And he, he talks about the fact that, that McKinley uh, really helps cement the Republican majority that's going to dominate um, politics for the next 30 years. Um, and so it sort of brings a lot of different coalition parts together uh, to support like people who support the expansion of America abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and is it not Lewis Gould that argues that Mc- it's McKinley rather than Roosevelt is the first modern president yeah. in air quotes? McKinley's the first that you can ever see on moving images. Yes, and, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. finding those um, back in the day. But yeah, he's just sort of passed into history as the guy who paved the way for Theodore Roosevelt, who is another example of a, pre- a vice president, vice presidential candidate who was no one ever wanted to actually be president at the time, um, at least the people who picked him. I think Teddy Roosevelt was on the ticket because he'd really, really annoyed the sort of Republican boss of New York, um, as you, the way you had bosses back in the yeah, day. Yeah. And, um, and so a sort of way to get him out of New York, because um, they haven't been the governor at the time, was to, to put him as vice president. Um, and an outrageous and, racist to boot. And the rest, as they say, is history. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on that note, uh, I actually really enjoyed that. That wasn't a complete disaster. There's a, there's a slim chance you might now have heard this, dear listener. Yeah. Um, but I like I like how we refer to listener in the singular. Like, <laughs> there's only one person ever going to hear this. Uh, thanks, mom. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So we'll we'll leave it there, and uh, we're off after this to record the first in our new podcast series, which hopefully you'll have listened to. Yes. Um, so hopefully that's going to go well. But thank you very much, Malcolm. Thank you very much, Mark. Cheerio. Goodbye. <laughs>